Greetings, my friends. This is Conversations with Consequences with the Catholic Association. I am your host, Gracie Christie, and I am joined by my friend and colleague, Andrea Picciotti Bayer. Hello, Andrea. Hello, Gracie. Today we have such an exciting topic, a topic that is, well, not maybe not so exciting as it is sad. We're going to talk about the sexual abuse crisis, especially as it relates to a case that's going on right now in Australia, the case of Cardinal Pell. He was accused and convicted of molesting, or maybe the, the right word is raping, a boy, or young, yeah, a boy, uh, several decades ago. And we have George Weigel joining us later to talk about this. But I know Andrea and I are both full of the subject, right, Andrea? No, and, and this is what a uh, privilege to have George Weigel on our podcast because um, he's been one of a handful of people who have really been trying to get to truth and defending who I think we all believe to be innocent of these accusations and, and unjustly convicted. And I've written a, a piece on kind of Pell as an example of what could happen if we're not serious in looking at uh, and, and being honest with ourselves, at, at really wanting truth. Um, and I think when, when we think about the abuse crisis, especially the abuse by priests of, of young children, we're all disgusted. But Andrea, and don't you think? Don't you think that it's easy to to I wouldn't even say jump to conclusions, but to believe potential victims when they come forward, when we know there has been so much ugliness and abuse perpetrated by people who were exactly the wrong people to be doing this, people that we all looked up to. No, and, and the incidents of abuse that have been proven are disgusting. They're yeah. evil, they're horrific, and we need to get this rot out of the church and protect children and bring back purity to the church and, and to the priesthood, to the episcopate as well. And I think, I totally agree, but I think that when it comes to people like Cardinal Pell, we, we are confronted with the danger of taking out the good wood when we're getting rid of the rot. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined in the studio by George Weigel. He is the Distinguished Senior Fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's a Catholic theologian and one of America's leading public intellectuals. He holds the William Simon Chair in Catholic Studies at the Ethics Public Policy Center, and he is best known for writing the definitive biography of Pope St. John Paul II, Witness to Hope. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. This is your hostess, Gracie Christie, accompanied by Andrea Picciotti Bayer, my colleague and friend at the Catholic Association. Today, we are very proud to have as one of the first guests on our very young radio show slash podcast, Mr. George Weigel. Welcome, Mr. Weigel. Hi, good to be with you. Oh, no, we, we really, it's a, it's a point of pride that you've, that you've acceded to, that you've agreed to join us. And um, we were hoping that we could talk to you about the situation of Cardinal Pell down in Australia. I'd, I'd be delighted to discuss it with you. So just to bring up our guests, our listeners, um, on what's going on with Cardinal Pell, he was recently um, 
well, not just accused, but convicted of molestation of two boys many years ago in the 90s, I believe, and he was convicted for a term of six years in jail. And there, he has strong defenders, amongst them Mr. Weigel. So we were hoping that he could shed some light uh, on his personal knowledge of Cardinal Pell. Uh, let's begin by clarifying some of the facts here. Uh, the Cardinal Please. was convicted at a retrial of the sexual abuse of one young person, uh, the second complainant having died previously and having withdrawn the charges before his death. Mm -hmm. The retrial followed uh, a first trial, which ended in a hung jury, which I am reliably informed was uh, overwhelmingly in favor of the cardinal's acquittal. So the question becomes, how does a charge for which there was no corroborating evidence offered by the prosecution and which was uh, deemed completely impossible physically, to have happened under the circumstances in which it was alleged to have happened, namely in a busy cathedral after mass uh, on a Sunday in a secured area that was uh, open to the scrutiny of, of everyone. How, how did this second trial, the retrial, end in a 12 to nothing conviction? In order to understand that, you have to understand that the public atmosphere in Australia in general, and particularly in the state of Victoria and the city of Melbourne, where all of this took uh, place, these trials took place, uh, is quite frankly hysterical. It is irrational beyond description. I have been involved in public controversy for the better part of 40 years, and I have never seen anything like this in my life. Several months ago, I wrote a column comparing it to what I believe is the only appropriate analogy, the completely hysterical anti-Semitism in late 19th century France hmm. that led to the false conviction on treason charges of Captain Alfred Dreyfus uh, in a prosecution that is now recognized as, as a kind of gold standard, if you'll pardon the yes. phrase, <laughs> for, for a miscarriage of justice. So where are we now in all of this? Cardinal is in jail. Uh, has been for the past several months, uh, describes this as an extended retreat, uh, <laughs> is cheering up the people who come to cheer him up, which I take to be oh, a sign of a clean conscience. Beautiful. And um, his appeal will be heard by a panel of three judges on June 5th uh, and 6th. Uh, one has to hope uh, that those uh, appellate judges will quash this wicked and untruthful verdict. Uh, because what is really on trial now, I believe, is Australia and its criminal justice system. Mr. Weigel, when you talk about the atmosphere there, how does that manifest itself, this, this witch hunt atmosphere? It manifests itself in any number of ways. A completely toxic media environment in which prior to the cardinal's sentencing, there were cartoons published in the press uh, calling for the public hanging of Cardinal hmm. Pell. It manifests itself in a truly deranged journalist named Louise Milligan mm -hmm. uh, for the uh, an employee of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, their uh, equivalent of our public broadcasting service, who wrote a despicably false biography of Cardinal Pell, continuing to deprecate and, and malign him 
on, uh, on in the national media, government-supported national media of Australia. It manifests it, itself in demonstrations outside the courtroom, really? in which um, those with eyes to see will notice professionally printed, printed placards. Huh. Somebody's paying for that. Do you? Yeah, do those you are not those are not cheap. Well, and here in the U.S., we have our own hysteria, um, and there's a great anti-Catholic fervor in in the press especially do you think that australia is an anti-catholic bias or an anti-cardinal pell or a perfect storm of both i think it's both uh, andrea uh, and and it has to be said uh, at the beginning at, of australia as it has to be said here the church has brought something of this on it itself by its mishandling of abuse uh, cases uh, over decades. The true irony of the situation in Australia uh, is that George Pell, as, uh, as Archbishop of Melbourne, later Archbishop of Sydney, initiated the first review processes yeah. to bring clerical perpetrators of sexual abuse to uh, book. Moreover, when he was uh, in Sydney uh, and had established these protocols for dealing with abuse charges, a first set of false charges were laid against him. He stepped aside from office. Hmm. He followed his own protocols. Uh, and he was cl completely cleared by a retired justice of the Australian Supreme Court who investigated the matter. Uh, now, uh, it, I'm not sure how deeply you want to dig into the deep background of all of this, uh, but Cardinal Pell has been a controversial figure in Australia for, for many, many years. He has refused to be politically correct in an environment full of toxic political correctness. He has been a defender of the right to life uh, in circumstances where that is not popular. He has refused to cave to the LGBTQ agenda. All of this has made him a public uh, target of calumny and, and misrepresentation for a long time. And because he likes to mix it up. I mean, he doesn't just quietly make points. He likes to, you know, get into the fight. Uh, in a country that used to be noted for robust dialogue, that's apparently considered a public offense right now. Well, and, and interesting that you mentioned that. One of the things that was baffling to me as an American lawyer was the gag rule that was placed over the proceedings. And, and I wonder if you could explain a little bit to our listeners what was going on in Australia and why is it that here we only heard about the details of these proceedings and even the allegations until after the conviction? Well, I, th I have a rather benign view of that, actually. Um, I believe the trial judge by the way he conducted both the hung jury trial and, and the retrial, uh, bent over backwards to be fair to Cardinal Pell. Good. And I think he put on that what was called a media suppression order mm -hmm. uh, in order to try to protect the juries from the kind of public hysteria that he knew was going on. Now, there are, why didn't that work? It didn't work in part uh, because Australia has, or at least the state of Victoria has, I don't know whether this is true in other jurisdictions, 
it has a very weird jury selection process. You basically take 12 people off the street. <laughs> there are no peremptory challenges of the sort that really? we're familiar with in criminal cases here where you can knock somebody off a jury because you think, you know, they're not going to They've got a personal bias. They've got a personal bias. You don't like the way they look, whatever. I Mm -hmm. mean, you can just knock them off. Uh, Secondly, uh, several years ago, uh, in a wave of public outrage over sexual abuse, which, as in the United States, Hmm. stopped at the Catholic Church, did not reach into the public school system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, The state of Victoria amended its criminal law on sexual abuse cases such that the Office of Public Prosecution can bring uh, what we would call an indictment, they call it laying charges, uh, against someone simply on the word of a complainant without any corroborating Hmm. evidence. Hmm. Somebody says somebody did something bad to me 20 years ago, they can go ahead with it. And there's no limitations on... Evidently no statute of limitations on this. The Pell matters, the first bunch of the the ones that came to trial, um, the one that came to trial was from 1996, I believe. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, and this has not been noted in much of the media stuff except what I've written, uh, a second set of charges... Uh, which involved even earlier alleged uh, goings-on in a swimming pool uh, from maybe 30 years ago. From the were, 70s. Were, from the 70s. Were dropped by the prosecution. Sure. Well, because they were ridiculous. Well, the whole thing is ridiculous. <laughs> and what has now come out, as I pointed out in my column on this last week, is that the, the allegations of this particular complainant whose charges went to trial and resulted in this false conviction – Uh, bear a striking similarity Hmm. to uh, what turned out to be a fake story of clerical sexual abuse published in Rolling Stone magazine in 2011 and subsequently demolished uh, in a Newsweek story. So there's something extremely weird going on here, but it's not the behavior of Cardinal Pell. Let me me interrupt for a second to remind our listeners or to inform our listeners if they just joined us that this is Conversations with Consequences and we're talking to Mr. George Weigel about Cardinal Pell and his ordeal in Australia. And uh, Mr. Weigel, if you could, if I could take you back to what you mentioned in the beginning of this, of this, you talked about the impossibility of the, uh, of, of what he, what Cardinal Pell was accused of actually happening the way that it was said to have happened and in the location where it happened. Can you tell us about that impossibility? Well, here we get into matters probably not uh, fit for family radio. So let me, That's right. let me put this delicately. Maybe in if, a delicate way. If you can imagine a man dressed in full pontifical vestments uh, standing in a sacristy with an open door in an area of the cathedral with security guards outside, uh, molesting a choir boy in six minutes, uh, you can imagine more than, than I can imagine. This, this simply, in terms of the, the gross physical details, was impossible. Yeah. Uh, more o- moreover, the cardinal's uh, master of ceremonies testified at both trials that he was never other than at the cardinal's side during the entire morning in question. Uh, No one uh, reported any of this at the time. No one recalls any mention of two choir boys disappearing into the sacristy to start swelling altar wine, 
a detail, by the way, which was in the Rolling Stones story, hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is all a tissue of fantasies. And the question of whether we are dealing with simply a disturbed individual who may have been abused by somebody uh, but now has laid this charge against the cardinal or whether we're dealing with something much more sinister, mm -hmm. namely a plot to get George Pell uh, for any number of reasons, uh, that can be dealt with after the appeal is heard and hopefully the verdict is quashed. But there's some – something is very, very sick here. When we were speaking in the very beginning, you mentioned that um, Australia is really what – you know, that kind of legitimacy of the rule of law in Australia is something that is being put out. And for American listeners and American lawyers, we have kind of a strong history, recent history, of kind of a defense of the criminal defendant, right? There's a lot of protections for the criminal defendant. And those same protections are not as present in Australia, and there's a lot more deference given to prosecutorial discretion. It does strike that the decision to bring this case on the basis of one witness and the second who you mentioned had passed away, there's issues that he may have recanted to uh, his mother. Do you? What do you know in speaking with people with... Uh, counsel for Cardinal Pell. What was the motivation behind the prosecutors? Is there a sense or an opinion on that? Well, we haven't actually discussed that, but let, let me back this whole story up a little bit, a little bit farther. Um, in uh, early 2017, I believe it was, Cardinal Pell, whom I saw regularly in Rome after he had moved there to try to uh, cleanse the stables of Vatican finance, uh, told me that he had been told by the Victoria police, who had previously gone on a fishing expedition hmm. uh, against him, taking ads out into the, in the papers, saying, does anybody know of anything untoward happening in the cathedral, blah, 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 that nothing was going to happen. Then in April of that year, I was back in Rome, and uh, the cardinal told me, well, I've just been told something is going to happen. Hmm. Um, the charges are going to be laid. Okay, so the police decided to bring charges. That's the first question, and the question is why did they, why did they do that when the evidence was so thin? Now, there is this provision in, in the law of the state of Victoria that you can go ahead with, with a prosecution if there's no corroborating evidence in an abuse case. Uh, the next stage is that this all went before um, a kind of hearing judge in what is sort of the equivalent of a grand jury proceeding here. This is a, this is a magistrate who's not a high-ranking jurist but who, who decides whether the prosecution is going to go forward. There were eight of these charges at that point. The defense, uh, the cardinal's defense demolished the prosecution's case. The magistrate threw out four of the charges but and said of the four remaining charges, I probably wouldn't vote to convict on these, mm. but I think we should have a public trial anyway. Second bad move by the judicial system. So then we have the first trial. Uh, there is no uh, cross-examination of, of the complainant whose testimony is simply taped and presented to the grand jury uh, – to the jury. The, um, 
And the lack of cross-examination was? Uh, don't ask me. Uh, yeah. But it, it didn't happen. This may have been deference to, yeah, to a, a victim, victim, blah, blah, yeah. blah. It seems um, amazing. It but, seems amazing no. to me that a man's life could be torn down by a simple recording of an accusation. Yeah, well, that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, the, the case was then demolished by, by the defense for the various reasons we discussed just a moment ago. And the trial ended with a hung jury. I actually do know some of the details of that, but I'm not at liberty to go into them. Uh, it was an overwhelming, um, uh, seems to have been an overwhelming uh, vote in favor of acquittal. And there was reports that, that the jurors, some of them were actually weeping. Oh, well, they did. No, that wasn't, wasn't acquittal. I, I'm the one who wrote that, and I got that from people <laughs> in, in, the course, in the courtroom. The jury foreman was was crying, and, and two were, so were two of the other jurors. So then we go, that's the third mistake. Then we go to the retrial, and the same demolition job is done on the prosecution mm -hmm. case, and the jury brings back a 12 to nothing verdict after at least once and possibly twice, I'm not quite clear on this, sending back to the judge a request for clarification of how they are to construe evidence. So the jury was then confused. They, then they come back and with 12 to nothing for conviction. What I conclude from that is that they ignored the judge's instructions mm. on how to uh, construe the evidence. Uh, so that's the fourth mistake. Then we get to the sentencing hearing in, I believe that was f the, the sentencing, uh, well, it was a sentencing hearing and then there was the sentencing procedures. During the sentencing procedure, the trial judge who presided over the sentencing procedure never said once, I agree with this verdict, hmm. which would be the normal thing. You know, you're a scumbag, I agree with this, and I'm sending you off for 10 years. Um, he simply said about a half a dozen times in a very lengthy sentencing document, I am doing what the law requires hmm. me to do. So he's but he never showing how he's bound to respect said, the jury. He never said, I think this is a this is a good verdict. Hmm. Now, Mr. Weigel, I read this is Gracie, I read that uh, I did read that long uh, uh, screed by the by the judge and he did keep going back to that. And I think it says a lot about Cardinal Pell's character and we're gonna take a short break, but uh, we want to come back and have you tell us about how long you've known Cardinal Pell and, and how you can, you can tell us about how you see his character. We're back with Conversations with Consequences and with our guest, Mr. George Weigel. We are talking about Cardinal Pell and his ordeal in Australia. Mr. Weigel, how long have you known Cardinal Pell? Uh, 52 years uh, uh, next month, uh, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, in the summer of 1967, um, my parish, which was accustomed to uh, hosting a newly ordained Australian priest from Rome who was usually on his way home to Australia, but in this case was on his way to Oxford for doctoral studies, wel welcomed this tall, lanky, a uh, guy named George Pell. He became close friends with my family over that summer and 
remain close friends with my mom and dad uh, till their deaths and uh, to my brother and me uh, ever since. Uh, needless to say, in June 1967, I was a rising junior in high school. Uh, I had absolutely no idea that this man and I would be involved uh, in two papal conclaves <laughs> together, <laughs> uh, several synods, and a whole lot of other stuff. Um, but no, we've known each other for a very uh, long time. And um, uh, I have to say that my brother, who is a somewhat less volatile personality than I can be, <laughs> uh, absolutely went off like Mount Vesuvius when this latest bunch of stuff happened and was saying, do they want us to get on a plane and come down there and testify yeah. to what interactions with teenagers were like 50 years ago? I think one of the things that's important to bring out here, and I've mentioned this in and, and my writings on this, I'm not sure anybody else has. Uh, Cardinal Pell, as a member of the College of Cardinals, and at, at the time as a member of the Roman Curia, was a citizen of Vatican City. He carried a Vatican diplomatic passport as well as his Australian passport. He did not have to go back. No. That's uh, true. He could have just sat in Rome and said, this is a bunch of nonsense. And I'm not going to play this game. But he decided to go back immediately. I mean, there was no hesitation mm -hmm. on this. A, to clear his own name. B, to clear the honor of the church in Australia, which he had done more than anyone to reconstruct after the massive confusions of the 1960s and 1970s. And that's another factor in all of this. There's a lot of ecclesiastical payback in Australia going mm -hmm. on here in terms of the public hysteria, the character defamation, et cetera. When you, when you speak about the strong character, and I'll, I'll admit, when I heard about Cardinal Pell's, um, the accusation against him, I don't know him personally. I know people who do, and I asked, could this be true? Is this true? And, and I'm hoping that many people aren't starting in a place of, of accepting accusations just because a person wears a clerical collar or, or are members of the hierarchy. I would but, guess, Mr. Weigel, that knowing him as, for 52 years, if, if he had been involved in any of this or had done this, anything like this, you would, caught some, you would have caught some wind of it or seen some indication of it. Well, what I have seen indications of ever since he became the auxiliary bishop of Melbourne is a public campaign to destroy him. Uh, so that that's the continuing uh, line here. Now, there are some heroes in this, uh, in addition to Cardinal Pell, who is the true victim in this case, I might add. Uh, one of them is an Australian Jesuit named Frank Brennan, Father Frank Brennan, whom I know slightly. We suffered through a miserable uh, concert by the Sistine Choir in the Vatican <laughs> in 1991 with John Paul II holding his hands over his ears to protect Not in prayerful hair. silence. <laughs> oh, goodness. Anyway, Frank Brennan is a, is a man of the left. He's been very involved in uh, indigenous rights uh, issues in Australia. And he's been a kind of uh, public policy and, and uh, ecclesiastical sparring partner for, for George Pell for a long time. Frank Brennan is also an honest man. Uh, he attended both of these trials every day. He has publicly expressed his conviction that this, that this retrial conviction uh, is not warranted by, by any of the evidence. 
uh, there are a couple of journalists um, uh, in Australia, uh, Andrew Bolt, an atheist, self-described, uh, Miranda Devine, a serious Catholic, uh, who have come uh, to the defense of Cardinal Powell by, by raising all sorts of questions about the, the um, uh, legal aspects of this. It was Andrew Bolt who uh, most recently raised the question of whether the cardinal's cell phone communications with his former master of ceremonies were being intercepted by the Victoria police mm. and then leaked in a edited form to an anti-Pell journalist. Uh, and this is in the wake of the sentencing. So there's an awful lot of strange, to put it gently, stuff uh, going on here. But it is congruent with what I des described a moment ago, a 30-year campaign to destroy this man. Can we speak a little bit about um, Cardinal pre uh, Pell's presence in, in the hierarchy of the church and, and the reaction of the Vatican? What has it been? What, where do you think there has been um, lack of response in supporting him? Because these are peers who know of his character, who know of his, his um, earnestness and honestness, and there's, there's been a bit of silence, and, and is that necessary in, well, uh, in deference I mean, to the civil authorities, or what, what are your thoughts on, on the role of the church? In, in Rome, I don't know anyone who knows Cardinal Pell well who does not believe that this entire thing is a travesty. Um, I think that's true of, of many of his colleagues in the American hierarchy. Uh, every time I write a piece about Cardinal Pell, most recently last week, Cardinal O'Malley of Boston hmm. calls me up and says, uh, please tell George I'm praying for him every day. Um, what I objected to was the response by this interim Vatican spokesman uh, to the to the sentencing, uh, instead of saying this process is not complete, we await, we await. the 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 end of, of the process, and we hope that it's a just end. This character um, said a few things about well, there'll be an appeal, but the Holy See wishes to underscore. It's maximum, I believe the phrase was maximum respect for the Australian criminal justice oh, system. Goodness. Totally gratuitous, mm -hmm. absolutely unnecessary. I wrote a very strong column on, on that, which I then sent to a friend there who sees the Cardinal Secretary of State, Pietro Parolin, yeah. on a regular basis, and I said, I want you to hand this to yeah. him personally. This Do is unacceptable. Do you think the Vatican is, is afraid of supporting prelates when other prelates uh, are being exposed uh, uh, I don't as want to being serial offenders? I, I don't want to speculate on that. I, I, I don't know the motivations of, of uh, people, but th that was simply a stupid statement. That's an incompetent press spokesman. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that's a problem for the church when you've got an incompetent man. Uh, saying stupid things putatively in, in the name of the Holy See. Uh, Pope how, Francis how? has communicated with Cardinal Pell on several occasions, telling him of his, you know, his support. 
uh, that's private and that's uh, that's fine. I mean, he's mm -hmm. he. It's not his job to be uh, making public comments on this. Um, could you could you tell us a little bit about Cardinal Pell's circumstances now since the sentencing? He He's at a, something called the Melbourne Assessment Prison, which seems to be, as prisons go, a reasonably uh, decent place. Um, he's in a cell by himself. Uh, he's allowed two visitors a week beyond his um, uh, legal team. He's apparently getting hundreds of letters every day uh, from people all over the world, uh, assuring him of their support and prayers. Um, he, he told me at the beginning of this, the day before the sentencing, he said, I'm going to consider this an extended mm -hmm. retreat. Um, and as I say, when, when, when I hear from those who have gone to visit him, they say, we came to cheer him up and he's cheering us up. Is he, is he able to celebrate the no, mass? He is not, he is not eligible. To, he is not allowed to celebrate mass, which is a complete outrage. Absolutely. On the spurious, how do they, on the spurious, how do they keep him? From celebrating because they mass, say by not allowing him his things? Prisoners are not allowed alcohol. Hmm. Oh. Now, if you can imagine an imam asking for a prayer rug and being told uh, prisoners are not allowed no, oriental or carpets, yeah. I mean, there no, would be no, a total uh, rabbi requesting a prayer shawl. This is all just petty persecution and nonsense from people who, frankly, ought to be ashamed of themselves. Is he able to receive on those two visitors spiritual Yeah, yeah, sure. Supports? I mean, I just got an email from Archbishop Comensoli of Melbourne the other day saying he had spent a fair amount of time with the Cardinal last week. I'm sure he brought him Holy Communion. Um, my guess on knowing, uh, having known George Pell for 52 years, is he's the one giving spiritual yeah, no, <laughs> to, to everybody else and probably converting a few of the jailers uh, at the process, one of whom, I'm told, gave him a rosary on the oh, first day he was, good. he was brought in. I think it's a, it's not, it is not a cruelty uh, that he is by himself. Uh, given was there the hysteria, a about yeah, given the hysteria, yeah. given all of this stuff, I think it was thought it was it was safer for everybody uh, if he were uh, in a cell by himself. No, so. but the cruelty truly is taking away the ability to. Sure, I mean no Holy Week, no mass. Easter. I mean oh. this is this is really bad uh, stuff, and it would not be tolerated in respect of any other religious uh, figure. What are our next steps? You mentioned that there's going to be the appeal uh, in, the, in the, the next coming is, days. The appeal is heard by three judges, a panel of three senior judges, uh, on June 5th and 6th. I expect we'll go through the same routine that was gone through at the trials. The yeah. prosecution will present its case. The uh, defense will explain why this is... What is called in Australia, this is an important point to bring out, an unsafe verdict. Hmm. And that is defined in Australian law as a verdict that the jury could not rationally have reached. Now, it's absolutely clear f to anyone with an open and serious mind that this was a, a, an unsafe verdict. Unsafe. So on the facts of the matter, this is a slam dunk. On the politics of the matter, this it's is anything but a slam dunk. Yeah. What I have been suggesting in, in several columns is uh, what I've been 
expressing the wish in several columns, is that these appellate judges, whom I have to believe are serious people, understand uh, what I think calmer, rational spirits in Australia are beginning to understand. This is Dreyfus 2.0. If it goes the wrong way, they are going to look really bad. And I think if this verdict is not quashed at this appeal, there will be an international campaign announcing it's not safe to travel to Australia. It's not safe to do business in Australia because there seems to be, at least in the state of Victoria, there's no rule of law. No rule of law. And uh, these guys on this, uh, these appellate judges, I think, have to be aware of that. Now, whether they are willing to man up in the face of this public hysteria, I don't uh, know. This is somewhat analogous to the Watergate hysteria. Hmm and what Gerald Ford faced in, in, in pardoning Richard Nixon, the difference being that Nixon was guilty yeah. and Pell is innocent. Is there any danger? And I'm hoping, and I think all of us, we need to continue to pray that this, this, his appeal is heard and that he's vindicated and, and declared uh, innocent. Is there a danger if his conviction stands that he could suffer punishment uh, in the church? And, and because everyone, you would hope that there would be uh, in the internal disciplinary review, kind of uh, eyes wide open, seeing, seeing the reality for what it is. That's, that's a good question, Andrea. Um, any ecclesiastical trial, uh, first of all, would be rather difficult to conduct <laughs> since he's, he, would, he would be in jail. Um, it would, one would hope, recognize the irrationality of, of the verdict uh, in Australia uh, and the irrationality of upholding the verdict. Yeah. Uh, anyone who suggests that this is in the slightest way analogous to Theodore McCarrick and that, well, we mm-hmm. did this to McCarrick, therefore, uh, is really declaring themselves uh, quite untrustworthy. So I don't know what is going to happen uh, should, should, the, should the appeal not be successful. Now, if it is successful, uh, I am informed that uh, the prosecution could try again. Uh, it seems unlikely that they would do that, but that's not illegal, yeah. so to speak. Um, If it isn't successful, there is one final level of appeal to the Supreme Court of Australia. Um, But I think we're at a we're at a real inflection point. Well, there was some some news stating that that if his appeal isn't successful at this stage, at least what I've read recently in the last day or so, that they weren't going to continue. Is that? Who's they? That that uh, I'm sorry. That Cardinal Pell would not seek any further review, and I'm uh, not sure. I'm, if that's... I'm certainly not aware of that. Nothing's been said about that to me by the cardinal, by his attorneys, or by anybody around him. You, Mr. You... Weigel, if if George Pell is if Cardinal Pell doesn't win his this appeal or or the next appeal if it goes ahead, how long would he is he expected to stay in jail? Uh, the sentence was six years, of which the present four, against which the present four months count. Um, I think there could be uh, a commutation of sentence after three and a half years, mm-hmm. something like that. 
Um, but the Cardinal's not, he's not a spring chicken. He's 77. And, and, you know, and although he seems to be a scrappy fighter, anyone that can face with such supernatural outlook, uh, such injustice. Well, it's important uh, in, in thinking about how he's handling this to remember those, those years he spent in England during his graduate studies. Uh, this is a man immersed in the history and, and spirituality of John Fisher and Thomas More. Mm. That's right. Uh, Beautiful he knows, <laughs> he knows what um, suffering for the truth is about. Uh, that has characterized his entire Episcopal uh, ministry. Um, and uh, his equanimity in, in the face of all of this um, is, is really somewhat like, reminds me a bit of C.S. Lewis's uh, defense of the divinity of, of Christ. Mm -hmm. Lewis said, anybody who says this stuff is either telling the truth or is a complete lunatic. <laughs> uh, the way uh, Cardinal Pell has handled all of this uh, means that he is either innocent, which is what I believe, or he is a complete, total sociopath. And that is that there is no slight, the slightest scintilla of evidence of that uh, at any point along uh, the line. So, you know, as we wrap this up, let me um, uh, underscore the point I made uh, in the first segment. What is on trial right now is Australia, its reputation for justice, its criminal justice system, uh, and its capacity to be a place that people would want to visit, want to do mm -hmm. business in, want to live in. Well, and I just want to thank you, uh, Mr. Weigel, for writing in defense of Cardinal Pell, not just because he is a friend and not just because he is a member of the hierarchy of the church, but because he is an innocent man. And the few other very talented and eloquent people who have written in his defense, we should all read and we should multiply our support for him in our prayers and in our, in our communication. Mr. Weigel, I, I, I feel that Cardinal Pell is very fortunate to have you in his corner, and I'm sure that our listeners, after, after listening to your vigorous defense, will have him in, his prayer, in their prayers. So well, thank I, you very much. Thank you. I'm I'm simply doing what friends do mm. when when, That's friend, right. when friends are in trouble. Um, but I have been deeply touched over the last several difficult months by uh, the, all of the emails and letters I've received from mm -hmm. people um, assuring me of their concern for Cardinal Pell, their prayers. So he is being supported by an ocean of prayer around the world. And uh, let us hope that that is efficacious. Yes, let us hope and let us well, pray. Well, we'll keep praying. And thank you so much, Mr. Weigel, for joining us in our podcast, Conversations with Consequences. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. We just finished a wonderful 40 minutes with George Weigel, and I'm here in studio with my colleague, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. Now we're turning to our segment on the TCA clips. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for our smart Catholic audience. 
Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Today I've picked out three clips from all our different wonderful articles that we sent out. And the first one we're going to talk about is a real bombshell that came out on May 28th in Crux. It's titled, McCarrick Correspondence Confirms Restrictions Speaks to Whirl and China. So after speaking to George Weigel and thinking a lot about the sex abuse crisis as it's affecting Cardinal Pell, now we can think instead about Cardinal McCarrick, a totally different situation. Well, this article, Gracie, is is really just um, the beginning. I think everyone understands, and uh, it, it sh- reveals a, a lot of the confusion um, over McCarrick's role within the church and his struggles and the number of people that knew um, that he was struggling with these grave disorders and, and behaviors. I don't know that he was doing a lot of struggling. I don't think Do you he... Feel like he was struggling? <laughs> <laughs> I think that he was in... in I shouldn't in laugh. That's perhaps, a horrible thing. No, in, perhaps in, in grave denial as opposed to... Um, being a true prince of the church, like we believe, you know, one that of the Cardinal things that Pella pops is. out at me in this article is the way he talk, He says that he he was sharing his bed with seminarians and young priests, but that he didn't think that that was such a big deal. No, it's 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 egregious. It's egregious, and I think that we're going to be learning more and more as more people come forward with what they knew and and are lifting the fear of reprisals that once he wielded over people. You know, and it makes me think that when you have actors like this who were who have been so evil for so long that it it makes it really hard for the good priests, the good prelates uh, who apparently Car- Cardinal Pell is one of them who are being caught up in this terrible uh, tornado of the sexual abuse crisis. Well, and what we know is when light shines, what is good and true and beautiful will shine even brighter. And and I think that there's a lot of purging still to do within our beautiful, beloved church. Uh, but what will remain will be pleasing in the eyes of God and help all of us continue on our path towards heaven, hopefully. Well, I hope you're right. <laughs> Very much. I will pray that you're right. And the next article we're going to talk about is from you. It's from the Catholic... Herald, and it's a touching piece that I really recommend to every, all of our listeners. Uh, it's about, well, why don't you tell us what it's about, Andrea? Well, this is a... a Wait, a, give us the title first. <laughs> the, the piece, is, like you mentioned, is in the, in the Herald, and it is about um, Iraqi Christians, and the title is Iraq's Christians are slowly coming home, but they face grave new threats. It's the fruit of an interview that was arranged from a dear friend of mine with two young Catholic Iraqi university students. They um, grew up in Karakash, and when they were teenagers, uh, they fled at the, you know, at, with, with ISIS coming to, to destroy their town, and they fled to the town of Erbil from Karakash. And they spent years um, of their youth kind of recovering, living. Uh, one family lived 25 in a two-bedroom house. And oh. yeah, no. And now that ISIS has officially been driven out of Karakash, their families are returning and they face new challenges. These young people. But Andrea, beautiful just people. because ISIS itself, like the, the military component, has been driven out, that doesn't mean that the people who, who were there, their neighbors, they're not necessarily welcoming them, are they? There, there is some um, kind of attempt, especially within different Christian communities, to come together and work with 
the local other communities. But it's a challenge, and they need security, greater security for Christians who face continued threats, and they need opportunities. They need well, opportunities great, to grow. It's a great article, and it really shines uh, a light. It opens a curtain into this, this dark area and this dark period of our history. So thank you, Andrea. That was my pleasure. Next, we turn to our third article. It's in The Hill, and it was written by our colleague, Ashley McGuire, who joins us on the phone. Hi, Ashley. Hey. So the article you wrote is excellent. It's called, Tweeting Won't Solve Francis Deeper Church Fire Problem, Prime Minister Philippe. So you're, a, you're referring to, of course, the fire of Notre Dame, but you're connecting some dots. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So everybody knew and watched in horror with, uh, when Notre Dame burned. Um, but I think a lot less people are aware that there's been a series of other um, purposeful attacks um, on Catholic churches throughout France, uh, including arson, graffiti, uh, desecration of sacred Catholic objects like Eucharist. Um, and so in the article, I talk about the fact that, you know, just because Notre Dame fire has been put out, there's still a, a deeper problem um, in French culture uh, that's that's creating sort of animosity such that people feel emboldened enough to attack Catholic churches like this. Ashley, do you, did, you, did you see when Notre Dame was burning those beautiful pictures of the people praying outside the cathedral? Yeah. That was really, yeah, no, that, to me, that was very moving. That was. That was very beautiful, and that was a sign of, I think, vitality. Um, but again, in the article, I, I just gave sort of a tip of the iceberg snapshot of the, the sort of systematic attacks that um, Catholic churches have been experiencing recently. Well, please, listeners, go to The Hill and uh, look up Ashley McGuire's article. And thank you very much. To all our listeners, these are the TCA clips, and you will find links to these articles on our podcast page. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on his coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry, and do look up his daily homily, written in audio, on his website, www.catholicpreaching.com. This Sunday, we will have two conversations with consequences with Jesus. Depends on where we live, in the Northeast and in Nebraska. This Sunday is the seventh Sunday of Easter. But in the other parts of the country, it is the translated solemnity, the ascension of the Lord into heaven. And so we need to prepare for both Sundays because both conversations are meant to impact who we are and how we live. In the conversation for the seventh Sunday of Easter, Jesus prays during the Last Supper that we might be one just as he and the Father are one. He was praying for church unity, and we know that God is a communion of persons in love. Jesus was praying that we would be one as the Father and he are one by the personal unity brought about by the Holy Spirit. That's an incredible standard. And we know that Jesus never prays for things that are impossible. So it is meant to be possible in us that we have a communion resembling the Trinity. That's ultimately what we're gearing up for. We pray in heaven. But Jesus wants it anticipated here. And he gives two reasons for it. He says that the world may know, Father, that you sent me and love them as much as you love me. For the spreading of the faith, what's most important is the love that we have for each other, because that's the way others are going to know that they are loved by God if they see the way that the love of God exists between us, and that the 
world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father, that this message is real, that it really leads us to a new life, a life that lifts us up ultimately toward heaven. That's the prayer of Jesus. And in the gospel reading for the Solemnity of the Ascension of the Lord, which we see Jesus later, 43 days after his ascension into heaven, lead them up to a high mountain. And as he is blessing them, departs from them, giving the command to go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature, teaching them to carry out everything he has commanded us, knowing that I am with you always until the end of time. Those last instructions by Jesus are really significant. He could have stayed here on earth until the end of time, doing all the work himself, making sure that no one be lost. But he trusted us enough that as he was departing, blessing us, he gave us that command, which is a sign of his blessing, so that we might be able to fulfill his mission. And he wouldn't put the salvation of others there hearing the gospel at risk if he didn't know that we, together with the Holy Spirit, were capable of that mission. And so in both of these ways, Jesus has a consequential conversation with us. He's praying for us right now before the Father that our communion might resemble the love that exists bef between the persons in God, and that we will go on out to bring one person at a time into this life-changing communion. May this gospel, this word of Jesus, impact your life and mine this week. God bless you. Thank you, Father Roger Landry, for another spiritually and theologically intense homily to prepare us for this Sunday. And thank you, George Weigel, for coming and being with us in studio to talk about the terrible case uh, facing Cardinal Pell and a call to action to pray for a just result and for his liberation uh, from incarceration. Yes, we will be praying. And in the meantime, you've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, a service of the Catholic Association. I'm your host, Gracie Christie, joined today by Andrea Picciotti-Bayer and George Weigel. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week.